and there's a lot of background noise and I'm not sure why. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm just wondering if I need to like (laughs) be quieter in my chair. That might be, that might be what it is. I I have a really hard time sitting still, like really (laughs) sitting still, especially when I'm on the phone and especially when there's no video. Yeah, that could be what I'm hearing, like a chair or something like that, which is totally fine. It'll work. Yeah, like right now I I heard something. I'm not sure what it was. Yep, that was me kicking the chair as I was away from that one into... One that doesn't spin. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the one that I make the kids sit in because they don't sit still, right? Yeah, exactly. Scott R. Anderson received his PhD in psychology from Virginia Tech. Dr. Anderson has had extensive training in and experience with behavioral interventions, parent management strategies, and consultation with schools and medical providers. He specializes in using evidence-based treatments and evidence-informed strategies in addressing a variety of behavioral health concerns. On this episode of Mental Illness and Me, he discusses how parents can help support their children with mental health disorders. My name is Katie Houston Davies, and this is Mental Illness and Me. I was actually born in a small town here in uh, the, the rural part of New York. Graduated from high school, and I swore I would never come back to New York. I wanted some distance, and uh, so you know, I went to, to college and uh, graduate school and been all over the place. I was in the Air Force for a few years um, as a psychologist, and now... I live literally in my old backyard. So um, <laughs> be careful, you know, best laid plans and all. I, uh, um, yeah, ended up right back where I started. When I'm not in the office, usually spending time with my family, I have a wife and I have four kids. Um, the oldest is a teenager and the youngest is in kindergarten. Uh, so it's quite the spread. Um, and the four of them keep me pretty busy. We do some things outside. We like to garden, skiing, really into, I used to be really into skiing. My knees slow me down a bit now, but I've got a daughter who's uh, really into it. And so that's exciting. Wonderful. Thank you for that introduction. I would love now to hear a little bit about you as a professional and why you became interested in the field of mental health. There are a lot of jokes about it among the family and friends um, because my My father is a licensed psychologist. He was actually one of the early psychologists here in this part of New York State. He was actually the director of community services here in the county. Um, And he's still the director at at a neighboring county. And my mom has a master's in psychology and is a licensed mental health counselor here in New York. So apparently it was just too much family influence. I couldn't overcome it. My dad actually was against it. Um, when I when I switched my major to psychology in college, he was like, oh, I really don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> um, he, he's okay with it now, but he was worried as a parent. You know, they do that. I, I really liked math and science in high school. My teachers all thought that I would be like an engineer or go into something related to that. I took organic chemistry my first semester in college. I'm very proud of that. And I did fine. But, you know, I, it just, it, that kind of stuff, it didn't hold my attention very well. The careers didn't hold my attention. Psychology was this great blend of science and statistics, philosophy, all of these other fields that all kind of blend together to help other people. 
Right. Well, that's really interesting about your parents both being in the mental health field. Did they meet because of that? Or was that just a coincidence? Oh, boy. Yes, they did meet because of that. Um, Actually, my dad really wanted the agency to hire my mom when she applied for the job. Um, This was this was out west. Um, This was out before they moved to New York. He did not directly hire her. So it was not any kind of thing. but yeah, yeah, definitely a little bit of a workplace romance, you know. Well, I am I'm just so excited to have you here on the show to help us understand a little bit better about the parents' role in helping our teenagers, our children, helping this generation with the struggles of mental illness. I've had people say to me before that they don't like the phrase mental illness. Tell me what your Mm. thoughts are on that. I talk about this quite a bit, actually. You know, and the first thing that I usually tell people is, you know, when someone asks me about mental illness, I'm, I'm not even sure how to define it. You know, a lot of times when you say mental illness, we think of something really serious, really severe, and can kind of perpetuate some stigma. So I, I think for me, if I think mental illness, I think of a term that we often use of uh, serious and persistent mental illness, which is really the things that are um, like schizophrenia and uh, related psychotic disorders. We might, some people might put severe cases of bipolar disorder in there. So, yeah. So what would be a preferred term, for example, to talk about a a kid who had anxiety or depression, mm-hmm. what would be, a, you think, a more appropriate term to use? So I, I, use, I use things like, you know, um, behavioral health condition, um, mental health condition. I want to ask, um, there are many that think that mental health disorders are the plague of this generation and that it's much more prevalent now than ever before. Do you agree with this? I think broadly, yes, but I would, I would say there are a couple things that qualify my answer. I try to be a big picture person and I love history. So our understanding of mental health has changed so radically over the past 50 or 60 years that comparing trends is really difficult. So I, I think that's important to keep in mind. We're aware that mental health is a thing. We're aware that There are a lot of different kinds of behavioral health disorders. It can be a a broad variety of things. So having said all of that about the challenges with just doing epidemiological research and all of that, I do think that there are some concerns about what is going on environmentally that might be causing an increase in things, especially anxiety disorders and mood disorders, and especially with children and adolescents. Right now, there's been a big concern about this, and there are two influences that are getting a lot of media, Um, social media, and the second one would be the pandemic. Uh, There's some accumulating evidence over the past few years that especially social media has been having an impact on uh, mood disorders, especially with teenagers, um, and perhaps most with adolescent girls, There was some evidence decades ago that the introduction of Western television uh, seemed to actually cause eating disorders uh, in in some Polynesian cultures. 
where they didn't seem to have eat those eating disorders before. And I don't want to say, oh, all social media is bad and we, we shouldn't have kids use it at all. But one of the things that they're finding is that the way that we use social media matters. What other influences we have in a child's life, that matters. And then, you know, the other messages that that kid is getting, these things all do matter. So that kind of leads to my next question, which is, is mental illness purely a biological thing? Is it circumstantial? Is it some of both? What do you think? <laughs> Psychologists get get uh, a lot of flack for this kind of answer, but you know, it's it's kind of true. Yeah, it's both, right? Like most health conditions, there's a biological component and there's an environmental component. And Although there is a range of heritability, some disorders do seem to be more genetic than others. ADHD, for example, is a a very uh, hereditary disorder. Uh, And other disorders might be a little bit less genetic, but that still leaves a lot of room for the environment. Right. I think that, you know, so many kids, as a teacher, I saw so many kids on 504s with anxiety, with depression. Mm-hmm. And it, as a teacher, you saw, we saw it so much that we started to wonder, you know, is this just happening more often because of the environmental influences or like, you know, are, are people now being born more often with these disorders already part of their DNA? Or like you said, is it just being diagnosed more? And then I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that, you know, children do impact their own environments. So an anxious child as a infant and as a preschooler um, might shy away from certain activities and that might actually reinforce the anxiety. So if there isn't a caregiver who can helpfully, uh, you know, support that child in confronting some of their anxieties and helping try to test out some of these anxious hypotheses and find out that, okay, the world can be scary, but we can find safe ways of navigating it without avoiding everything. If that doesn't happen, that child can become increasingly and extremely anxious. And that's when you might get really severe behavioral health conditions rather than just a kind of introverted temperament that, that is very functioning. Right. Well, that is a good segue into this next question, which is parents of kids with mental illnesses or mental health disorders have a unique challenge of trying to keep their kids safe, but at the same time, giving their kids autonomy and allowing them to learn from their own life experiences. So what would you as a health professional advise parents of kids with significant mental health challenges who are very resistant to treatment? I think the big, the first priority is always going to be safety, that they're not engaging in um, intentional self-harm and also that they're not doing anything risky, even if the harm is not intentional. Some kids are just so impulsive. uh, They're just not thinking things through, like uh, jumping out windows. Uh, That that happens, right? Some kids, they're just like, oh, hey, this is fun. Um, I'm sneaking out, jumping out of a a window that's like six, seven feet off the ground, um, but that can become dangerous. And we absolutely need to do whatever it takes to keep the kids safe. That might mean contacting uh, emergency mental health services, 
Sometimes there are mobile crisis teams where I live that will actually come out and do an evaluation on the spot if the situation warrants it. In other cases, it might be that we call law enforcement. Um, I've had that happen to patients, unfortunately. But again, we have to maintain safety in that moment. Right. If there is no crisis, if there is no proverbial fire, with teenagers, you know, I, I can try to build some rapport. I can try to, to build some trust. And depending on the situation, sometimes that works. I've had a couple cases where frequent sessions over a long ter- period of time actually worked. I didn't think it would, and it actually did. The reason that that worked is because the kid was at least willing to sit there in the room or sit there on the telehealth call with me and have some level of conversation with me. They weren't generally angry about the visit. They weren't storming out of my office all the time. They were like, okay, I'll sit here and talk, though I don't like you, which is more or less a direct quote. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can't say all of the things kids have called me, but that's okay. Keeping a kid against their will in a therapy session and an ongoing therapy is going to do more harm than good because we're teaching them that their opinion doesn't matter. We care about the parent's anxiety. And that's why the kid is in my office is the parent's anxiety. And they're just too angry that if that's the message we send them, they're never going to give therapy a chance or they're not going to give therapy a chance for a very long time. So then it comes down to what are we going to do if the kid won't engage? The, the child, the teenager should be in the room with us for these conversations, ideally. But if the, if the teenager is refusing, sometimes I can still meet with the parents and we can talk about parenting strategies and ways to support their child, that's more commonly effective with younger kids. So if it's a behavioral condition, we talk about the evidence-based parenting strategies for dealing with a child who has ADHD or a similar condition. Interesting. So it's when they hit the teenager years that it really is more valuable to have them there in the session. Right. And, you know, as is always the case, it's the in-between years that are the tricky ones, right? Right. Um, So kids between eight and 12, kids in those age brackets, I usually like to have in the office if it's anxiety or a mood disorder. But I also want the parent in the office with us. The reason for that is that I want the parent to see the kinds of questions I ask, to see my demeanor. What I actually need is to teach them ask questions. So I model that for the parents right there in the office. And then for the last five or 10 minutes of the session, I'll have the kid go in the waiting room, maybe with one of the parents, and I'll talk to the other parent and and kind of do a a debrief. I'll often see parents in these family sessions kind of start taking over. Oh, it's a great feeling. Because that's when I know we're starting to make some really good progress. It's a hard model of therapy to teach some, some families because there are some families are kind of scared of it. There's some families that are not interested in it. But one of the things that I tell parents very early on is that I am meant to be temporary. So I'm not meant to be here forever. Um, Sometimes I end up sticking around longer than we initially hoped for. And that's okay. But like, 
I really want parents and kids to communicate about these issues, to work together and not need me all the time. That's fantastic. I, I think that is so wise. I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts on medication as a way to help alleviate mental health disorder symptoms yeah. in youth? And when do we as a society run the risk of over-medicating children and teens? You know, I'm not a prescribing provider. I did not go to medical school. However, like most therapists, I do try to learn about medications because I believe that talking to patients means that I need to be able to know what the treatment options are and what the medications can offer. Overall, I am actually rather pro-medication. It, it does depend a little bit on the disorder. Depends on the child's age a little bit. It depends on how certain I am of the diagnosis. So like an easy case would be if it's an eight-year-old child, they clearly have ADHD and everybody is convinced of it. I'm very pro-medication. I am also going to say, in addition to that medication, can we please work together so that doing the helpful discipline strategies as parents and so that the child has some uh, coping strategies for managing their impulsive behaviors, some of their inattentive behaviors. Maybe we'll talk about uh, organizational skills training. And incidentally, I always like to point out like the evidence-based guidelines, even when they're not from psychologists. Um, the American Academy of Pediatricians, um, they would point out that like for ADHD, if the kid is six years old or younger, the first line treatment is behavioral training with the parents. We should teach the parents how to use behavioral interventions to respond to the kid's ADHD-related behaviors. If the kid is six and older, the recommended treatment is a combination of a medication and behavior training. I did want to say one thing specifically about the running, a ri running the risk of over-medicating people. There are times where I think that maybe we are trying to make a kid sit down and shut up. And, and I, if that sounds a little bit rude, it's because I, I feel like it's a little bit rude. It doesn't happen often, but I do think that there are times where it seems like a caregiver has this expectation that a child should just be quiet, not cause problems, and that maybe the parent doesn't want to try to learn strategies of really just working with the way that the kid is built. Really, if we're asking ourselves as parents, what is it I'm trying to do to work with my kid? that will prevent us from jumping the gun on a medication. If we're viewing the medication as helping my child confront and solve problems and better prepared, better able to learn skills, to be prepared to go out and be successful in the world, then I think we'll have a good approach. Trying to use medications to numb ourselves and numb other people so that they don't have to feel unpleasant things, that's not going to go well. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I, I like what you said about how sometimes we just expect kids to sit down and shut up, especially because I think generationally it used to be more 
um, the rule is that mm-hmm. kids were meant to be seen and not heard. And so it's possible that some of the older generation has this idea that kids need to be so well behaved. And it's interesting because we live in a world with so much stimuli and so, mm. so much, I mean, just the whole approach to teaching, to education is different. It's more creative. It's more group centered. It's more, there's just so many things that lead to a child not conforming to that mold of being just seen and not heard. It's, it's not encouraged. Yeah. I, and that's, that's part of what I was thinking about is this old notion of children should just do things. And at the same time, these are often the people who also don't really believe in behavioral health. They don't necessarily believe in medications or therapy. And so it's, it, it puts kids in a jam. They can't do what is expected of them and they're not going to be given the supports. Right. What do you wish more parents would do with their children, with their teenagers, to help them be better equipped to face these significant challenges that are happening with mental health in this day and age? I've come up with five things. I want to mention the five things in bullet point form, and then I want to try to explain them. Um, I know that as a parent, this is something that I think about a lot. The first thing would be, I think we need to try to keep up with our kids. The second, I think we need to keep up with some of the basics in the mental health world. Um, trying to keep up with the information that's out there about mental health. Third, I think we approach these issues with our children as a team. You know, we are on the same team as our kids. Fourth, we need to allow our children to have a voice in their preferences for treatment, um, but without putting too much pressure on them. And my fifth point would be that as parents, we need to stay calm. So keeping up with our kids as their interests change over time, um, even the annoying TikTok videos, you know, kids often have this thing about uh, they want their parents to understand them, right? And so if you're not keeping up and, and being the lame parent, you know, the one that the teenagers roll their eyes at um, because you're trying to be cool, if you're not doing that, it's going to be harder to keep that connection going. So keeping up and and just trying to be a part of their interests. It will make it so that they're comfortable talking to you about the real stuff. Right, right. I, oh, that's so important. The second thing is to keep up with the basics of the mental health world. Um, And I'm not saying that you need to try to diagnose your kid, but I really want parents to learn about problems that their child is facing. If there's a condition that you think might describe your child, I want you to learn about it a little bit from reputable sources. As parents, we need to ask questions in those visits with the psychologist or the therapist or the developmental pediatrician. And then we need to Google it and then we need to ask again after we've Googled it. All right, so third, approaching the behavioral health treatment as a team. It's not just about having Uh, parents and children in the session together. Um, It's also about being willing to like collaborate on coming up with a solution with our kids. Even if it's individual therapy with just the teenager and the parent is not in sessions and the parent is not really needed in sessions, the parent is still part of the team. 
And I wanted to explain that one of the complaints I get the most from kids, and especially from teenagers, is that they do not get enough attention from parents or they don't get as much as they want. The first time I heard a teenager say that, I thought they were kidding. They weren't. And I get this time and time again. That is so interesting because as a, I'm a stepmom of teen, we have three teenagers and one who's a preteen. Uh-huh. And you, it, sometimes you feel like they just want nothing to do with you. But really, I don't think that's the case. I think, like you said, they want you to be interested in what they're doing and to be involved, but just not overprotective or overbearing or, you know, so that's really interesting to hear you say that. Absolutely. And, and the other crazy part of this is that those same teenagers are still not necessarily going to be nice to the parent, but there's a part of them that is just so glad that you cared enough to bug them. I've seen it because I've seen these kids who will tell me, oh yeah, I just want my mom to spend time with me. And then, you know, five minutes later, mom joins the session and they're screaming at each other because the kid picked a fight. (laughs) Like that happens. Right. Um, Both things can be true. Fourth. So, allowing our children to have a voice in the treatment planning process, but not putting too much on them. A lot of times parents will call me up and they'll say, I want someone to talk to my kid. And they'll say, you know, that my kid wants to talk to someone. Sometimes they'll even say that. And then later on, maybe they're like, you know, my kid just doesn't seem to open up to you. If this is a teenager, who's depressed or anxious or has had a traumatic event and might have post-traumatic stress disorder, yes, this would be a concern. But what floors me is that sometimes parents say this and the kid is five. And initial response is, well, um, that doesn't matter so much. I, I I really just need to talk to you as the parent Children need to have a voice, but not too much. If a seven-year-old does not take medication, I'm not going to jump, jump out and call the psychiatrist and say, hey, we need to stop this. I'm going to have a conversation with the parents and the seven-year-old about, hey, what's going on? Uh, what don't you like about taking the medications? We might start practicing swallowing pills. We might try to find something that masks the unpleasant taste. We might have a conversation about how often do we need to take this? If it's a teenager, if the the teenager's been on the medication a while, we might have a conversation with the psychiatrist about like, hey, should we look at cutting back, um, dropping one medication and just sticking with the remaining medications? should we look at taking a break? Is, is that possible? Or are we in a good enough place we could do that? At the end of the day, the parents and the medical providers are the ones who are gonna make these decisions until the child is getting older and has more and more influence. So I don't wanna have a seven-year-old making all of these big medical decisions, but I also don't want to a seven-year-old. Right. Right. You have to strike that balance between giving them a little bit of ownership and also making sure that what is best for that child is being done. My last point was about having telling parents to stay calm. 
It's easy when you read the news about the mental health crisis in the media. It's easy to get overwhelmed by this. And even more so if our child is one of the ones struggling. It might trigger us to worry about how our parenting or our genetics might have contributed to our child's problems. Um, you know, if we have had mental health problems, then we might worry, oh my goodness, what if my kid has all of these terrible things just like I had? Right. These are all understandable reactions, but we need to try to keep them in check. We can focus on, hey, we can do so much. We have so much more awareness now. We can diagnose and treat so much better than we could before. So there are things we can do. Focus on letting your child not fit into some uh, sense of identity that you want for your child. Let your child be happy and successful in whatever sense that is gonna, going to mean for him or her. And avoid trying to make him or her fit into your own specific definition of success. I, I think a lot of us, we want our kids to fit the, the generic graduate from high school, get a good job, start a family. Maybe your child will be happy in a very different way and maybe that'll actually work out. The goal of Mental Illness and Me is to normalize the mental health conversation and help those who suffer feel less alone. Your support is critical to raise awareness and help as many people as possible. If this podcast resonates with you, please follow our Instagram account, Mental Illness and Me KT, our Facebook page, Mental Illness and Me, or leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. If you are interested in sharing your story, please email mentalillnessandmekt at gmail.com.